It's 2017. I'm James Carlton. God forbid. Hello, welcome to God Forbid. It is great to have your company. And this week I have a question for you. It's complex and simple. There's no right or wrong. It's deeply personal, yet everyone gets a say. You ready? What is your identity? Is what makes you you tied up with your family, your religion, your ethnicity, your postcode maybe, or your gender? And what if your categories carry disadvantage? Aboriginals die younger, women are poorer, the poorer are sicker. Now, the philosophy of liberalism tells us to live the words of Martin Luther King's dream, judge not by the colour of their skin, but the content of their character. And that's the way to deal with inequality, we're told. But King also acknowledged liberalism's weakness. If we completely ignore colour, gender, indigeneity, difference, won't we blind ourselves to the inequality that makes liberalism so attractive in the first place? Identity politics. It's the politics of our time, not necessarily left versus right or minority versus majority, but two ideas of who we all are. Are we where we've been or are we where we're going? An international panel up next. It's RN, God forbid. And straight into action, we have Professor Shane Houston, a Gungalu man from Rockhampton. He has a doctorate in health economics. He's worked in Indigenous health for 35 years in local, national and international roles. He's the first Indigenous person to become a University Deputy Vice-Chancellor. And he holds that role at the University of Sydney in charge of Indigenous strategy and services. Shane Houston, welcome to God Forbid. James, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, to get the ball rolling on God Forbid, we ask our panellists a slightly impolite question. What is your religious story? My family is Catholic. My uncle was president of the Aboriginal Islander Catholic Council in Queensland. I was brought up a Catholic. I was an altar boy. For my sins, I uh, was part of the organising committee of Pope John Paul II's visit to Australia, and especially his visit to Aboriginal people in Alice Springs. That all helps shape who I am. Not so much part of the organised church today. The essential value that I hold from that history is that of compassion. I think without compassion, the world is doomed Thank you for sharing, as we say. Our next panellist, Amna Kara Hassan. She's the founder and president of the Auburn Giants Women's AFL Club in Western Sydney. Six years ago, she recruited a team that's Indigenous and non-Indigenous, lesbian and straight, Greek and Turkish, Muslim and Christian. Now, underneath these labels, the women knew they were united by something much bigger, the knowledge that none of them knew how to play football, <laughs> at least in the first year. They do now, and the Auburn Penrith Giants last year made it into the Premier Division of the Sydney Women's AFL. I'm Nakara Hassan. Welcome to God Forbid. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, what religion are you? Born and raised a Muslim, but the point that I started the football club, I think I had to confront things that my family had taught me. I had to confront religious leaders. I had to be confronted within myself and really uncomfortable with what is it that I believe? What kind of Muslim are you? That was what was being pushed on me. Who pushed it on you? Men and women alike, Muslims and non-Muslims, but all from different angles based on what they viewed religion to be. 
let's listen. What did the non-Muslims say? Oh, well, take that off your head, which refers to me wearing the scarf. That is incompatible with being Australian. You know, why can't you just be a footballer and take that off your head? Um, And then within the community around gender roles. Did younger Muslim women raise their eyebrows at creating the footy club? Of course, because they'd been socialised to say, get married, have children and play a traditional family maker role. Well, what on earth would possess you to go play football? That's not important, nor is it consistent with what it is to be feminine. And I think that's a broader issue for women. What, what is feminine and masculine? And what journey has your dad been on? Oh, he's been on quite an interesting one. So my dad was not supportive when I chose to go to university and pursue a career. That was already quite challenging in that I chose to work for the Australian Federal Police. And so that, in his mind, was quite a masculine thing to do already. He was like, why would my daughter work for the police? He's a Lebanese migrant. He came here as an adult. He doesn't really trust police. And then not more than six months later, I decided to start a women's football team. And it took some time for him to readjust his lens around what women can do. And at the Australian Federal Police for many years, you worked in community liaison. More recently, you've been working for the Reform Culture and Standards Unit. Now, this all came to a head when your father was speaking on international Arabic TV. What happened there? Someone wrote to me and said, I am doing a segment for a Qatari sports channel and I would love to talk about women in sport because that's quite topical in the Middle East. And he said, I'd love to speak to your father because that audience is being challenged in terms of gender roles and his voice would be one they can relate to. So I said, okay, cool, come over and I'll tell my dad when you're over. (laughs) So, you know, dad's there and I said, dad, this is who he is. They spoke in Arabic. And he was asked two questions and the first was, how do you feel about your daughter and everything she's been able to do through sport? And my dad started crying almost immediately and he couldn't speak and he said, I'm really proud of her. Now, that wasn't the same man six, seven years ago who was like, what is this football nonsense? And then the second question, what would you say to all the people who have women in their lives who want to pursue sport? And he said, let them. Just let them do it. Were you proud of him too? I was so proud of him. And, you know, even I teared up because it's been a journey, you know. I couldn't have been at that point in the conversation with my father if I'd ruled him out as a sexist or a misogynist and said, this is what patriarchy does and it's crap. I had to really be patient and sit and have the conversation and be challenged, you know. And I'd get really worked up because I'm so passionate about footy and what I should be able to do. And the man I love more than anyone in the world is saying, I don't accept you at the time. And that was really hard as a young woman. I don't want to defy my father, but I also don't accept his position. So how do I have the conversation and get to a point of understanding? That takes time. Well, one day your children will hurt you as much as you hurt him. (laughs) (laughs) Now let's go to our next special panellist on RN God Forbid an internationally acclaimed piano virtuoso and composer, Malik Jandali. He's performed in Vienna's Konzerthaus, New York's Carnegie Hall, now RN Studio. (laughs) That's the highlight. He's played with the Russian Philharmonic, the Royal Philharmonic, but he is also known as the musician of the Syrian Revolution. He lives in New York now, but he's from the ancient Syrian city of Homs and he was one of the first artists abroad to speak out against Assad. 
Malik tours the world, raising money for the war's victims through UNICEF, Doctors Without Borders, Save the Children, and his own organisation, Pianos for Peace. And for this, he is honoured alongside the greats, Yo-Yo Ma, Yitzhak Perlman, as a Carnegie Great American Immigrant honoree. He's in Australia for the very first time, part of Refugee Week, culminating in a Syrian Symphony for Peace at the Sydney Opera House on Saturday 24th of June. Malik Jandali, marhaba, welcome to Australia. Peace, shalom and salam. Salam to you. Now we ask about your religion, Homs, multi-faith for more than a thousand years, Sunni, Alawi, Maronite, Catholic, Christian, Orthodox. What is the colour of your stone in the mosaic? My stone is a stone that you cannot see. It's music. Peace, music and unity. It is the religion of the people of Homs, which is peace. And that's what they're seeking these days. When you see those videos of Homs and you see the mosques and the churches and the souks and the monuments turned to rubble, what does that do for you? You forgot the synagogues too. Of course. One of the oldest synagogues in Aleppo has been destroyed. What you're seeing is the destruction of our identity and the beauty of our culture. And that has been done through the destruction of our humanity first, through dictatorship for the last six, seven decades. But now what we're witnessing is the physical destruction of our contribution to humanity. In Palmyra, in Damascus, where John the Baptist is buried in the Umayyad Mosque. In Aleppo, his son Zachariah buried in the other Umayyad Mosque. And the churches where you can hear the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic has been destroyed by this evil dictator. My duty as a human, as an artist, is to preserve and keep it alive through music. Thank God that nobody can destroy music because you can't see it or touch it. So I have been uh, using my freedom and my limited time in this life to preserve what is left through integrating the ancient music of Syria that has been preserved through the Silk Road in my symphonic works. And that's why I'm here. When you think about half a million Syrians dead, when you think about 12 million displaced, does it seem strange to mourn the buildings? Absolutely. I'm not undermining you know, the human life. What we are witnessing today is our modern-day Holocaust. Babies drowning in the Mediterranean, those are the Holocaust survivors who actually rejected to be involved in any violent activities. They prefer to go to the sea and drown. So they are actually resting in peace rather than living in peace. You know, I have been visiting refugee camps all over the world. I just came from the Zatari camp in Jordan. I had a concert with Save the Children. How many refugees at that camp? Around 200,000. The majority of refugees in Jordan are actually living with host families, which is really nice. I, I like that. And I have a special story I want to share with you and your audience. It's about this little kid who was basically dying, this little kid. And the last thing he told the doctor, he said, I'm going to tell God everything. In Arabic, He was summarizing the state of dehumanization that we are witnessing today. He said, I'm going to tell God everything. And he died. I witnessed to this moment that gives me the goosebumps and the inspiration to continue my musical journey for truth and beauty on behalf of that kid. Are we telling God everything? Are we searching for beauty and truth 
when we have our brothers and sisters drowning, excruciating, slow, painful death, and then we reject them based on their color or religion or nationality. This is a human issue and it's a catastrophe and I hope we can all join together in a symphony for peace to save our human values on behalf of that kid. Well, we have much ahead. Later we're going to hear the story of Malik's extraordinary anti-Assad protest music and the gut-wrenching story that comes with it. But up next, what makes a truly Australian university? Irene, it's God forbid. <laughs> 